Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. And joining me today to discuss the Coalition for Ocean Protection is David Stevenson. David is the director of the Center for Energy and Environment at the, C- at the Caesar Rodney Institute and a founding member of the American Coalition for Ocean Protection. David last appeared on the podcast in February 2020, where we discussed the Transportation and Climate Initiative. David, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so you're a founding member of the American Coalition for Ocean Protection, which represents a group of residents in Nantucket. Um, who filed a lawsuit over federal approval of the Vineyard Wind Project, which is the first industrial-scale offshore wind project in the U.S. Um, so in, the, in a press release that came out this morning, you described the coalition as a watchdog against misguided federal and state offshore wind policy. So can you start by telling us a little bit about the coalition, who's in it, um, how was it formed, and why is the coalition opposing this wind project in particular? Well, first of all, it's it's no accident that uh, if you take the acronym for uh, the American Coalition uh, for Ocean Protection, it's ACOP. Uh, we are going to be policing what the federal government and states are doing about these uh, offshore wind projects, which are, have a lot of problems we'll get into. But the, the coalition I, was kind of a brainstorm earlier this year. I had been working since 2017 on issues in, off the Delaware coast and off the Ocean City, Maryland coast. And uh, the, the city of Ocean City uh, was not happy about a lease area going right off their coast, just 10 miles off. And, and there was the, the basic belief is there's several studies that say if you're too close to shore, you're going to lose tourism dollars. People are not going to come back. And that was their concern. We had a number of concerns in Delaware. One was it's a Maryland project in federal waters and Delaware had no say whatsoever. So we worked together and we had, we wound up, there were a bunch of people in, in both Ocean City and along the Delaware coast, which is a 25 mile stretch with about six beach towns, um, about the transmission lines coming ashore and the, the big complaint was it was coming ashore in a rustic state park with uh, a plan for both the, 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 uh, the lines coming in, but also to build a uh, uh, substation on what is a barrier island and specifically in a wetland. And what we found is that um, we were getting no support from the State Parks Department. We were getting no support from the developer to put this in a more appropriate place. So we really started working together. People got, we went from October of 2019 when they announced this thing, 85% liked wind farms, wind projects. And um, two and a half months later, after we educated people about all the problems, it was uh, 85% against. And in the end, the developer said, oh, you know, this is a wetland. We're not going to do this after all. So it was kind of, they knew it from the beginning, but they needed somebody to fight against it. So what we learned was that if we worked with a group like the Caesar Rodney Institute, which has policy and uh, fundraising and just, you know, we're more experienced at running these kinds of projects with a bunch of fired up people from the beach community that we could be very effective. So, so. Our project off Delaware's coast got extended to 2026. And I started to think, all right, but what's that going to mean? 
And I, I, and looking at this, we found out that the Vineyard Wind Project was likely the first one to be approved. If approved, it was going to set the standard for everybody else. So I, I actually reached out to the folks in Nantucket. Uh, you know, you do a Google search and you find out there's a group in this town and a group in that town that are trying to organize to fight these things. And I found this little group in Nantucket. And... Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't pick up my, my cell phone if I don't know who's calling, but I got a number for one of the folks up there, and she picked up, and we started the relationship. Uh, they were looking for help. And as I call, started calling around to other beach communities where we found there were opposition groups, most of them had an online site, um, they all felt like they were the only ones fighting this, that they were very alone. They were looking for partners. And... I'm part of the state policy network. I've set up other coalitions uh, uh, with other state policy network groups, particularly along the East Coast. And it was just a natural that we started uh, pairing folks uh, with these, uh, uh, the grassroots folks up and down the, the coast of North Carolina to Maine with, with uh, state policy network groups. And it's worked very effectively. Yeah. So there seems to be a lot of local opposition to these offshore wind farms as you touched on there. Um, on your guys' website, you have sort of a FAQ of objections that um, people have raised about these wind farms. And I'd kind of like to go through some of that with you um, sure. today. So uh, I guess the, f the first question would be, you know, who's impacted the most by um, these wind farms? You alluded to uh, tourism um, earlier when we sat down here. Uh, what are some other impacts in terms of, I guess, commerce and um, uh, just local impacts. Well, the, the, the three big issues on, on, from an uh, economic standpoint are one, these things are very expensive. So, for example, President Biden wants to have uh, 30 gigawatts of uh, offshore wind by 2030. Just to give you an idea, that's 2,500 skyscraper-sized turbines spread over an area the size of Connecticut. Uh, from uh, from Maine uh, south to North Carolina. Uh, if you look at the total economic impact, it's close to half a trillion dollars for that 30 gigawatts. That gets broken down into each of these 17 projects. But you're looking at uh, a big piece of that is the increase in electric rates and the secondary impacts. You know, you have direct impacts uh, uh, and uh, induced impacts, and uh, so when you add up all those, all the, all the, the impacts, you wind up with about three hundred and seventy-five million dollars over the twenty-year life of these projects, just from the electric rate increases. And you know, it, National Renewable Energy Lab did, I think, one of the best analyses, and they did it on the Vineyard Wind Project. Came up with about uh, an average of ten cents uh, per kilowatt hour for the price. Well, right now in New England, you can buy power all day long at wholesale price of three cents, and uh, onshore wind and solar roughly four cents. So, even if you want renewables, you could do it a lot better than this. And we'll get into some of the other problems on top of that. So, the second big piece is the lost tourism. Uh, there, there are three key studies that really talk about the. Uh, 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 impacts on tour tourism. The Bureau of Ocean Energy Management themselves did a study in 2015 that said, uh, you know, how, how will people react to these things? So they showed visualizations at various distances 
of roughly a 600 foot high winter. And what they came back with was they had they had six categories from negligible to they dominate the horizon. And the dominate horizon turned out to be 15 miles off the coast. Now, almost all of these lease areas are between 10 and 15 miles off the coast. So most of them are going to be in this dominates the horizon. On top of that, what used to be a 600 foot high turbine, now they're not almost 900 feet. And the next versions that are coming out will be 1100 feet, the size of the Eiffel Tower. So uh, Boehm actually set the standard for this, that you know here's the reaction people are going to have. They didn't put economic numbers around that. But New York State, which of course is one of the more liberal states and is pushing offshore wind pretty hard, came up with a 20 mile exclusion zone. And they said, we're not gonna, if they're closer than 20 miles because of this Boehm study, we're not going to uh, 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 build closer than that. One of the results of that, there was a lease area 12 miles off the coast of the Hamptons, one of the toniest beach areas uh, around. And uh, they said, well, we're gonna abandon this lease. It had already been established by Boehm that this lease existed. So, and Boehm approved. And now this was only months ago. So here they are saying, we're gonna abandon the lease area 12 miles off the coast because of this 20 mile exclusion. You go up to Nantucket, it's 14 miles off the coast. Why are you approving one at 14 when you're abandoning another because it's less than 20? So two other studies looked at what's the impact um, on the economy, tourism economy. So. The, the best one was actually North Carolina State University. And they went with two real estate agents. They went to recent renters. Renters are the ones who spend the most money. They're there all week. They're going out to dinner. They're spending money on the rent. So a lot of the beach economy is, is based on those renters. So they showed them the uh, showed them these uh, visualizations and said, would you come back to the beach? And it was right after the summer they had rented. So very, very recent data. They came up with 38% would not come back regardless of the, di of the, of the distance and regardless of a discount on the rent. Uh, another 15 or so percent said, well, we'll come back, but we better get a lower rent. So very high number. Uh, another study from the University of Delaware uh, by some of my favorite people um, <laughs> said that, uh, at 15 miles, a 579 foot tall turbine, there would be uh, about 15% uh, would object to it. But then they also asked questions of, uh, of beachgoers. And by the way, they used a group uh, it wasn't actually limited to beachgoers. It was anybody that had been near the beach uh, over the last year. Uh, uh, would you come to see these? And, and, and about the same percentage came in that said they would, uh, they would uh, come to see. So they made the conclusion that at 15 miles, it would have no economic impact. A Couple of problems with the study is when somebody said they would not come back, they asked them questions about how certain they were and if they said they would come to see if it's, they didn't ask the same questions. So, so the study was kind of screwed up to begin with. But now you, when you take a 579 foot turbine and now you, you equate that to the data they received for 
uh, something that was five miles closer that would be the equivalent of an 850 foot, it goes to 29% would oppose and only 15% would say, I, I want to see them. So you wind up with this 14% uh, differential. So if you look at that range, 14% won't come back, 38% won't come back. Well, a, a kind of a middle number for that is 25%. So let's look at the pan pandemic. New Jersey published the impact of the pandemic on lost tourism dollars uh, 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 last year, 2020. And they came up with, we had 25% less tourism, right in the middle of that data. Uh, it wound up with 25% of our workforce getting laid off, but it actually had a 43% impact on the economy because it was those people who would have caught, come down and rented that didn't come, the ones who spend more money. So you had this huge economic impact. So not even assuming 43%, uh, I, you wind up with a with a $200 million loss from lost tourism if you if you look at those numbers, and then you also are going to lose you're going to lose commercial fishing. So one of the things when Boehm established what economic or what environmental impacts they were going to look at as part of the environmental impact state statement process, they, they included commercial fishing, they included the view, they included a whole bunch of things. And they uh, said uh, uh, after they did their study that it was going to have a moderate impact uh, on commercial fishing where the turbines were in, in, this, in, in this lease area. But then when they made their decision to allow the Vineyard Wind Project, they had a record of decision. In the record of decision, they said, well, we think the fishermen will abandon the lease area. Now, that's not a moderate impact. That's a major impact. Sure. And it has, it, ha it has some dollars attached to it. There's not a good study on how many dollars. So I used something like $20 million to round it up to $600 million. Uh, but that, those are the kind of numbers we're looking at. And... In uh, uh, just in uh, the, the vineyard project itself, it's going to wind up with a $350 million penalty for electric rates over the next 20 years. Very expensive. Yeah, so obviously the main way that the uh, coalition's pushing back against this is through a legal fund. And um, on your guys' website, you say that your attorney's review of the record of decision for the Vineyard Wind Project um, revealed that several areas of noncompliance with federal laws, including the Administrative Procedures Act, NEPA, the Endangered Species Act, all of these things, right. which you've sort of alluded to here. Um, we don't need to go into each one of those laws. It'll take a while yeah. longer than this yeah. podcast is going um, <laughs> And I, I think we've covered... Each one of those laws specifically actually on this podcast, so I think our listeners should be um, at least somewhat familiar with them. But could you just um, briefly explain sort of how um, how this project's not in compliance with those laws and um, just sort of outline your sort of legal case there? Yeah, well, the, the first piece, I think, is the is maybe the, the easiest and also shows some some immediate progress we've had, had with the lawsuit. Uh, there, there was actually going to be originally two lawsuits, an Endangered Species Act and a NEPA lawsuit. So uh, the Endangered Species Act, if you're going to sue for that, you have to give 60-day notice of intent to sue, which we did. 
Um, by the way, I am not a plaintiff. These, these are the folks in Nantucket who are the plaintiffs. They have their own lawyer. Uh, you know, we're, 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 we're not involved with the, the lawsuit directly. We're, we're simply uh, helping them with the project and potentially helping them with the cost of the, of the lawsuit. So um, when the when the 60 day notice went in, uh, we expected no response. But instead, uh, right near the end of the 60 days, we got a response from NOAA's uh, fisheries uh, service uh, uh, group that said uh, what we had claimed was there, there was new information on the North Atlantic right whale that very recent information showed that these turbines were going to be right in the middle of the primary nursing and feeding ground for these whales that are on the critically endangered species list. And we also had additional information that larger turbines, as you might expect, but hadn't been studied, make more noise. Now, of course, whales communicate, they search for uh, food, they uh, everything is done with echolocation, so loud noises are a problem. So the latest information was, okay, we've got more noise, which is going to interfere with, with the whale, and we've got them there more often in this particular spot. And we had uh, actually made public comments to that, which were ignored. Uh, when we put in the 60-day suit with all the same claims, they came back and said, oh, we think you're right. We need a new biological opinion. And we're going to do that. But in the meantime, we're going to stay with the old biological opinion that supports the approval of this project. Now, we're not going to let them put anything in the water, but you've got a year's worth of building turbines, staging them on land, getting everything ready for the project. So the first part of the lawsuit is, is a request for an injunction to stop any activity until we have this new biological opinion. We don't want NOAA coming back a year from now when they're ready to start putting the first one in the water and saying, oh, well, we decided we really don't need to change it, so uh, we're going to put the first one in the water tomorrow, and you don't have any time to react. So we've asked for an injunction to uh, uh, shut them down until this new biological opinion comes out. So that, that's the easiest one to understand. Uh, some of the others are, as we mentioned, uh, you, you, you can't approve a project that's going to result in total abandonment of, of, of uh, a fishing area. Uh, that's not a minor impact. There's uh, something your uh, listeners might not be familiar with is the uh, on, uh, Outer Continental Shelf Development Act, which was pushed uh, through under the Bush administration, which is the basis for offshore wind and the latest rounds of uh, oil well, offshore as well, including down in the Gulf. Um, and, that, and that's based on that act is why the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management was created. So it's all tied into that. Well, in that document, there are about a dozen uh, key things that have to be met. And one of the more important is you, you cannot go back and put something new in the water that's going to interfere with existing uses. And typical existing uses are fishing, vessel navigation, uh, the view. Uh, uh, the the all Indian is up on Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. They're known as the, the, the people of the sunrise. And now you're going to have turbines out there in the, in the middle of that. So back in December, uh, the solicitor for the Department of Interior 
wrote an opinion for Secretary ben, uh, Bernhardt uh, that he had a duty to uh, deny this permit request for the Vineyard Wind Project based on the fact that it was going to have serious uh, implications for previous existing uses. So that's basically what the rest of the uh, suit is about, NEPA. And there's you know pros and cons and arguments. And uh, of course, what happened is the uh, the new solicitor with the Biden administration, his second act in office was to reverse the first solicitor's opinion. But so the lawyers will have a ball with that one, let me tell you. But um, most of the suit is based on you're you're interfering with already existing uses. So I can imagine a critique of this coalition coming from maybe the right even that would say well, what you guys are doing is blocking new development and using NEPA and some of these environmental laws that are on the books um, to block new energy development, basically. Um, how would you respond to that criticism? That You mean, you mean like the left does all the time? Uh, <laughs> number one, yeah, it's kind of hypocritical. But the second uh, thing is, so let's take the, the one they most talk about with, with NIMBYism is uh, you don't want to see some rich property owner on the beach doesn't want to see it from his house. <clears throat> That's not what this is about. What we're about here is, you know, Great Smoky Ma Mountain National Park is the most visited national park in the country. It gets about 11 million visitors a year. If you take all the uh, beach communities from North Carolina to Maine, you're looking at maybe 40 million visitors a year. Now, there's no wind turbines on top of the Smoky Mountains. There's no wind turbines out in the Grand Canyon. The view is a very important part of those, those visits. And the same thing is true for the beach. Remember that BOEM study we talked about originally? These are going to dominate the horizon. It's, there's no doubt about it. And at night, they've got uh, uh, the ma major problem at this point is the, the flashing red lights for uh, navigation lights, which can't be turned off. There's taller ones that, that are for aircraft, and they've come up with some maybe something that may or may not work to turn them off when there's no aircraft around. But it's going to look like an industrial park out there. And that's not what people come to the beach for. So, you know, it's not so much worried about those uh, however many tens of thousands of people own beachfront homes. We're worried about those 40 million people that aren't going to know this is hitting them until they go to the beach one day and there they are. And uh, so when we, you know, it's, it's not about nimbyism. It, it's about protecting that. Um, it's about protecting the livelihoods of the people that work in the hospitality industry, the fishing crews. This is just a bad deal for them. And of course, it's the people who live near the beach that are most affected. They're the ones that own the homes. They're the ones that uh, 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 rely on the tourism business. And so from that standpoint, yeah, it's going to be local people that care. Uh, actually, everybody in Massachusetts care because their electric bills are going to go up, but uh, that doesn't seem to bother them so much. Uh, but so it, it, it has nothing to do with NIMBYism. You're, you're talking about taking this North Atlantic right whale as, as the prime example and possibly moving it into extinction. There's something like 360 of them left, 90 mating females that don't mate that often. Um, they, two weeks ago, the same fishery service from NOAA uh, came up with a really tough 
program for lobster fishermen uh, so that they would not interfere with the right, right whale because uh, they couldn't stand one more stress. Meanwhile, as part of this approval of the Linear Wind Project, they came up with a, a permit that says if you have inc if incidental take, which means if you killed them by accident, it's okay, you won't be fined, you won't be stopped, just report it. So how do you, how do you have, have that double standard? If, if you're going to make, if you, if you want to save the whale, you want to save the whale. And the whale's not the only thing. I mean, there are migratory birds. Think about these, these turbines are huge. Uh, the ones that they're using in, in your winter, like the size of the Chrysler Building in New York, three times the size of the Statue of Liberty. They have a sweep uh, of the blades equivalent to eight football fields. The tips are moving up to 180 miles an hour. These are bird chopping machines. We, we can count on land when there's an onshore wind turbine. They count how many birds are killed. In the ocean, you can't, you can't count them. They're eaten or sunk. But... Uh, I mean, there, there are groups that report over a million birds and bats a year each, a million birds, a million bats killed a year by onshore turbines. Uh, we're losing something on the order of 15,000 eagles a year to onshore wind turbines. Um, there's something called the Mid-Atlantic Flyway. It's where all the shorebirds migrate up and down the East Coast. We have one called the Red Knot, which is uh, on the endangered species list that goes from southern Argentina up to the Arctic every year and back, and they're flying right through these things. So there's lots of damage that has nothing to do with somebody who doesn't want to see it from their beach house. And certainly the, uh, the justification for offshore wind is usually climate change is the reason why we're supposed to take on these enormous costs in terms of uh, environmental impacts, but also, like you said, higher electricity prices. Um, could you talk a little bit about uh, what sort of climate impact this particular project would have? Um, let me let me go let me go a little larger scale than that. Let's take sure. the entire thirty gigawatts that President Biden wants. Perfect. The Environmental Pro uh, 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 Protection Agency came up with a uh, calculator. Uh, it's called Magic with two G's, and uh, I'm sorry, two C's. And uh, you can run through there how much carbon dioxide reduction you're going to have, and it'll tell you what impact it'll have in 2050 or 2100 on global temperatures. So the entire 30 gigawatts is four one thousandth of a degree Fahrenheit. That's it. You can't measure it. You can't even see it. You put it on it. I've got a graph where I show before and after the entire 30 gigawatts with a bar from zero to 59 degrees, which is the average global temperature. And you can't, you can't tell which bar is which. It's, it's, it's insignificant. So it's not gonna have much impact on climate change. And even, even if you, you know, you're dead set on renewable energy, why would you do something that's four times as expensive that is disturb, disturbing endangered species that you know, when you put these things up, you wind up on the seabed with cables with acres and acres of concrete and rock. And so you're, you're, you're not only affecting big things like the whale, you're affecting all the little things that are at the bottom of the food chain. Why would you go with something this damaging? Uh, I'll compare it to solar because also onshore wind has similar problems with the birds. But for one third the cost, you could put up solar 
and not have the visual impact, not interfere with the fishermen, uh, not uh, 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 killing these endangered species. So it just doesn't hold up. We don't need offshore wind to make improvements. The U.S. has, has done more than almost every other country in reducing carbon dioxide simply by switching from coal to natural gas. There's other things that we can do here that uh, if we want to continue to re reduce carbon dioxide, we can do it uh, without offshore wind. It's, uh, it, it's a false argument. So is there anything that we haven't discussed today that you think our listeners should also know about this um, project? Well, uh, we're going to have to fight this uh, in, in, in the court of law. I mean, we all went through, we made comments during the, the draft environmental impact statement to the, 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 the initial publications. Uh, we've gone to our elected officials. We've done everything you can do, and nothing has stopped these things. In fact, uh, one of the things that happened with this project was the uh, developer of the Vineyard Wind Project, when he's when he felt that the Trump administration was going to deny the permit, they pulled the construction and operation plan, ended the, the, the whole uh, permit process in December of last year. And then three days after the inauguration, they resubmitted it with uh, a new alternative, taller turbines, and expected at least six months, maybe a year of evaluation before they got the permit. So instead, Boehm on March 3rd said, okay, we've read your submittal. It's complete. We accept it. We're going to start working on it March 3rd. March 12th, nine days later, they issued the final uh, environmental impact statement. Now you tell me how you, you completed something in nine days that it worked. Well, their excuse for doing that in nine days was they had an executive order from the president who said, uh, you got to speed this up. And they said, well, we're just speeding this up. So they sped it up. Now, well, that's, that's a violation of the Administrative Procedures Act. But uh, so lots of problems there. We've got to do it with lawsuits. Nothing else is going to stop it at this point. And lawsuits, uh, this one first lawsuit could cost anywhere from $100,000 to $150,000. Um, we have raised, uh, on about two weeks, we created this legal fund. We had $75,000 in matching challenge grants. So if you donate a dollar, uh, uh, you know, there'll be another dollar sitting there. And we're, we are looking to increase that to a half million. And so we're looking for folks uh, who are interested enough in this to become either donors for the challenge grant or, or just a, even a small donation. And you can go to oceanlegaldefense.org and you'll find a whole bunch of information there and the ability to donate. You may not be interested, but you may know somebody who lives near the, in the beach community. And one of our big challenges is, is getting more and more people in those communities knowledgeable about what's coming. That was going to be my last question, was just where people could go. So uh, my guest today has been David Stevenson of the Caesar Rodney Institute and the Coalition for Ocean Protection. David, thank you for taking the time to join me today. Thanks for having me on. It's really helpful. Always happy to be here.